You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. You may be seated. Um, so my name's Ross. I am one of the pastors at Bethel and... Um, it's a great treat to be out here. I love being out here. I get intimidated when I'm out here, so two of the best preachers I know are on this campus, and Mark's my pastor, and that makes me nervous, And uh, but we're going to get through. I'm going to be in Romans 10. That's where I want you to go, and my commitment to you is we'll, we'll be done before kickoff, I mean, long, well, easily before that, because um, there's a game today, right? Okay. Um, who Who's playing? Who's... Uh, Nobody's in that game? Nobody? Um, anybody here rooting for the 49ers, by the way? Should have asked that before we prayed. I'd, I'd have prayed for you. All right, well. Look, that's about as funny as I get, okay? So I hope you enjoyed that. That was That's pretty much it. All right. Okay, so here's... Oh, let's see. Here's how I want to start. All right, Romans 10. If you, uh, so you've been doing Romans here, right? Can I give? Let me give you a little behind the scenes. Um, Romans, if you hadn't figured it out yet, let me say this about it. It's a super hard book. All right, Paul. Paul writes. He's in the he's in the deep end of theology. He's in the deep end of explaining the gospel, and it's beautiful to read it. It, it is the kind of letter that Paul writes. It nourishes your soul. It is. It's a nourishment for your whole lifetime. It is, it is really, really hard um, to preach. And so, especially when you get into Romans 9 and Romans 10 and Romans 11, as Paul is wrestling with this theological issue of, so, so what about the Jews? It appears that the Gentiles, you know, the gospels preach. I mean, these, these are pagans. They're, just, they're, you know, they're out doing pagan stuff, and they're not even looking for, for God. They're not even looking for righteousness. And he says, but, but, it, but it came to them. And the Jews who were God's people, who had a covenant with them, it seems they're rejecting the Messiah. So there's this tension of like, what's going on here, Paul? I mean, has God abandoned the Jews? Has he forsaken his promises? You know, are the covenants no longer in effect? And so in 9, 10, and 11, he's wrestling with, so, so why don't the Jews believe? His answer in chapter 9, which was last week, was, well, so you got to start... The place you start with all these questions, you start with God, and, and so God's sovereign, and so there is a sovereignty, uh, an electing sovereignty that is at play. Now, much of sovereignty is mystery. It, it, the sovereignty of God in elections, like one of those things, we get, we come to the edge of a cliff, and we get to peer out into this, you know, valley of mercy. Man, we're not taken all the way to the bottom of it. We're, we're just taken to where. We can catch a glimpse and we come away and go, gosh, God is breathtaking and majestic and sovereign and merciful. And, but like Paul will say at the end of Romans 11, I mean, how inscrutable are his ways? Yeah, the, oh, the depths of the riches of his knowledge. And who could ever plumb those depths? His answer is to take us to the, to the edge of the, of the valley, the mysterious valley of God's mercy, and show us. In Romans 10, 
he's going to bring that back down. He's going to say, okay, what's going on with the Jews and why don't they believe? And this actually is no surprise. He's going to, he's going to give us kind of an, a, a, a picture of Old Testament theology. Say, God always knew they wouldn't. All the way back from Leviticus to Deuteronomy to Isaiah to Joel, God's always foreseen that this how, is how it was. And in chapter 11, he's going to say, for us who are Gentiles, oh, we ought to thank and praise the Jews for the opportunity that they've provided us in their rejection of the gospel. We're, we're to live this out in such a way that they get jealous of us. That's what he's going to say. So um, in, in 10, he's going to speak specifically about the Jews, why, you know, his desire, for, he wants them to come to know the gospel. What is it if they did have faith? And why is it that they don't have faith? And so he's going he's to break this down for us. And the answer is going to be they are responsible for the information they had. It is not that God has not told them. He has. They're responsible for their rejection of him. So it started out this way. In, 19, in the 1980s, there was a, a great theologian named Mickey Gilley. And... He wrote, he was famous for a song, and it was looking for love in all the wrong places. You remember, you remember this? You, Stovalls, y'all ever dance to that? Two-step to it? Um, so, the, uh, so I would say, listen, if, if Mickey Gilly had been hanging out with Paul, and he was going, you know, touring around with Paul while Paul was doing the gospel, he, his, he, the song would have been looking for righteousness in all the wrong places and in all the wrong ways. This was the problem of the Jews. So look with me. So this passage actually kind of starts at the very end of chapter 9. So chapter 9, 30 to 33, is this bridge. It's the bridge that gets us from the sovereignty of God to the responsibility of man. And you've got to cross that bridge. And essentially, the sovereignty of God, that discussion began in chapter 9, verse 6, where Paul says, hey, essentially he's asking questions, did God's word fail? And then he asks a series of questions after that. His answer actually comes in verse 30. You can hear him say, no, God's word didn't fail. Let me show you what happened. He says, so what shall we say then? The, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that's by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Then he goes on to say, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone, which is Jesus. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 28. It says, God says, I'm laying this this foundation in Zion, and I'm going to put the stone right there in the middle. And that some will, you know, it's going to be a stumble, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And he says, and or or but and. Whoever believes in him, they won't be put to shame. So, we've crossed the bridge. And now I want you to see what Paul does, his first response. So, here's the sovereignty of God. His, his mercy is, is uh, uh, never-ending. His, his mystery you know, baffles us. But I want you to see what he does in answer or in response to God's sovereignty. 
To which, by the way, let me just say this. Sometimes you, you, well, this is the reason you don't hear Romans 9 preached very much in church is because people come away and go, oh, well, you're, you're a Calvinist. To which you go, no, Calvin wasn't even a Calvinist, you know, if we want to be technical. But really, we just, all we did was read Paul here, you know? It's not hard to understand. It's really hard to take. It's not hard to understand. But, the, but then the issue becomes, well, no, Calvinism, that's a bad word. I mean, that's, the, that's, the, that's a four-letter word. You can't, you can't say that because what it means is if you're a Calvinist, you don't care about people, and you don't care about the gospel, and you don't do evangelism, and you don't do missions, and, and you just think everything, this whole thing's rigged anyway, and, and you're a bad person, and you, and you, um, uh, and you grow a beard, and you know, all that stuff. And I just want to say, that's the, oh, I don't know how you train your kids. My kids heard a lot of stuff out of my mouth, but that's the not as smart thing I've ever heard. Because if you open up the very, I mean, the very next breath, this is Paul's response. It's not. So, you know, we just sit around with our feet propped up because God's got this thing rigged. That's not what he says at all. Look at what he says in chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers. Brothers and sisters. My heart's desire and prayer to God is for them that they may be saved. I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God. They care, but... oh. But it's not according to knowledge. Uh, the, 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 for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Actually, chapter 10, verse 1 doesn't surprise us because chapter 9, verse 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 started out with Paul saying, listen, if I could... I'd sacrifice myself for them. I, I would. I'd give up my salvation. I'd sacrifice myself so that they'd believe. Paul's response to sovereignty is this desire. His response to sovereignty is to feel in every way this crushing burden of human responsibility to do everything he humanly can to make sure they know the gospel and to make sure they'll believe. That's our response. It's so important to remember that. And then notice that this desire, I mean, this desire, the, the unquenching desire of his heart leads to prayer and prayer to God. And I would say it this way. Let me argue this for a second. Prayer is the ordained means. It's one of the things God has ordained as the means. So, so so God's decreed, you're suffering, he's doing all these things. Well, how does this actually happen? How, how does it actually get executed in history? And Paul has, or God has ordained, Paul's saying God's ordained prayer as the means by which God's sovereignty gets executed in history. C.S. Lewis wrote this. Maybe this will be helpful. He says, when, when we're praying about the result say, of a battle or a medical consultation, the thought will often cross our minds that 
if we only knew it, the, the event is already decided one way or the other. I believe this to be no good reason for ceasing our prayers. The event certainly has been decided. In a sense, it was decided before all the worlds. But one of the things taken into account in deciding it, and therefore one of the things that really causes it to happen, may be this very prayer we're now offering. He goes on. Shocking as it may sound, I conclude that we can at noon become part of causes of an event occurring at 10 o'clock. What Lewis is doing is appealing to a sovereign God who, who exists outside of time and space. This is time and space. That's for us. And he says, Let's, I, here's what I think. This is the mystery of prayer. This is I'm going to talk about mystery, prayers, and mystery. I believe that God can ordain it in such that I can pray about something at noon that becomes a cause of something that happened two hours before in God's sovereignty. He ordains the means by which he brings about the cause in his praying. And I would just say, listen, our problem, listen, your problem is not that you pray too much. You, you don't. Your problem is you don't pray enough. And it's hard. I mean, still small voice. You want to sit down and you want, you want to pray. I mean, listen, you say, well, I, I spent my time reading my Bible. Well, great. It's a one-way con a conversation. You read the Bible to hear from God. You pray so God hears from you. I mean, you can't pray without reading the Bible. You don't want to read the Bible without praying. Our problem is not that we pray too much. Our problem is we're, we don't ever sit long enough. I would say that the, the, the technology that we have in our hands, in our pockets, all the great things it is. I love technology. I'm not one of those old, you know. It has robbed us of being a praying people. Then instead of at a red light, where maybe we might have prayed in the past, we pull our phones out and we check our messages and we send the text real quick so we don't text while we're driving. You see what I'm saying? The, the, so the, the world is out to rob you of prayer. Instead of, instead of encouraging you and making time, you got to do that. you got to fight for it. Because it is part of the means by which God has ordained to do what it is that he's going to do. All right, so I told those guys in the back, I'm going to be so much faster, and it turns out I'm going slower than I was before. All right. So, they, but he says about them, look, so they have this zeal. I mean, they're, they're zealous, all right? I mean, which is good. I mean, enthusiasm, striving, eagerness. But then he says, it's not according to knowledge. So what it means, it's not, so theoretical knowing is fine, but it's, it's really, that's own, you know, that's math. They know God like they know math. What he's talking about here is this word, it's epinosis. It means, it means to experience or to, or, or, or to have this intimate knowledge. And it's the difference between knowing about something or someone and actually knowing them. My um, two oldest kids are at Texas Tech, okay? My um, daughter, my oldest daughter, she's graduating in May. My son's a sophomore. He's, a, uh, he's got this unbelievable life. You know, he's the sports reporter for the campus newspaper, which means he sits like courtside at the basketball games and on the sideline at the football games. And But what he, they were laughing about this week is um, 
in, in tech, you know, it's a, it's a school of 40,000 people, but you know, everywhere they go, it's so funny. So it turns out, I don't know if you know this, um, the, uh, so the quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs, he's from White House. Did you know this? It's great. You ought to Google this when you leave today. Um, so he's from White House, um, and, he's, and he's really good, I hear. And, and then, um, but then he left, and he went to Texas Tech University. Well, here's what's funny. My, my kids were telling me. Just 40,000 students at Tech, and everywhere you go on Tech, everybody has a story about how they know Pat Mahomes. Because, you know, he had a lot of time to spend with 40,000 people intimately. He was just saying how, you know, how ridiculous it is. And yet, that's very much the culture we live in. There's a lot of people know a lot about Jesus. Very, the, the number gets smaller when you talk about those that have an intimate relationship with him. And this is what Paul's talking about. They had a lot of zeal, but it wasn't according to knowledge, which meant they were, what they were doing, they were, they were trying to, uh, in ignorance, they didn't understand God's righteousness. They were trying to establish their own righteousness and here's what he says, is that when you don't know who God is, so you know all about God, but you don't know him intimately. What he's saying is you're going to take what is revealed about God, what you could look up about God, you're going to take that, and then you are going to take that information and construct or fashion God in your own image now. And this is what they had done. It's like this. It's like taking a box of Legos. So you get a, a new Lego set. And it's an awesome Lego set, like Star, you know, the, the, uh, the, the Starship Enterprise, you know, or uh, the Millennial Falcon. You know, I mean, it's like awesome. You can't wait to build it. So you get all the Lego pieces, and you go home, you open the box, you pour all the Lego pieces on the ground, then you throw the box away, and you throw the directions away, and then you take all those pieces, and you start putting all those pieces together, and, you, you know, they all fit together, and you have this blob. It's a Lego blob. And then you walk around, you come and you go, is this, what is that? It's the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> um, I, I don't think that's the Starship Enterprise. Sure it is. I used all the pieces in the box and I put them together. Like, uh -huh. um, I don't think Captain Kirk's ever getting on that thing, right? This is what people do. They take all of the information about God, they put him together the way they want, and they've Crafted a God in their own image. Which means when you craft a God in your own image, then what you do is you then, you then begin to say, oh, well, then this is what the requirements of that God are that I've crafted in my own image. And this is what Paul is saying when he says that, you know, this is their ignorance. This is not according to... Uh, to, to knowledge. And, and when you do that, listen, when you craft a God in your own image and, it, and then you construct what is required of that God that you have fashioned in your own image, you always end up with the requirements being something that you can do. The God of your own making will require nothing more of you than your very best. You know, your very best self, your highest self. The God of your own making usually doesn't require faith. It, he doesn't shatter your pride. He doesn't strip you of all independence and leave you desperately dependent on Him. The gods of our own making don't do that. In fact, the gods of our own making, they are fools that prop us up and invite us to believe that we have what it takes. And if somehow 
you believe you can do what it is God requires, that's not the God of the Bible. And I don't care how many verses you attach to what it is that you're saying. The God of the Bible requires of you what you will never be able to do. He requires of you a version of yourself you will never be able to achieve. Who do you worship? So Paul says, listen, this is what they've done, but here's what they don't understand in verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ came and fulfilled the law. So God had given the law to his people through the Mosaic covenant and the Ten Commandments and the 613 commandments that bore after that. And yet he also gave them the sacrifices because he knew, look, they can't keep the law. They've got to be able to have something that atones for them or covers over their, where they fall short of the law. And so he introduced the sacrifices. And now what he's saying is it's not the law that mediates this relationship. It's Christ because Christ has fulfilled the law and he is the sacrifice. Which reminds us this. Let me, let me see if I can say this as clearly as I can. Our purpose in life is not to make the flesh better. It is to become more like Christ. That is the whole goal of our life. That is the whole message that we have to the world. Listen, church is not a place of moral improvement. It's a place of life transformation. Christianity does not mean that you get better. You know what it means? You get dead. That's what we invite people here. When you invite people to church, essentially what you're saying, is, I wouldn't I'm saying I'd use these words, probably wouldn't work. But it's not like, hey, come, come to church because, man, we, we have this whole list of things um, that if you do, you'll become a better person. Which that sounds ridiculous, but that's essentially how we sell church. That the very best you can hope for is come here and clean up your life. No, no, no. Here's what we say. Hey, come to church with me. Come die with me. Come lay prostrate, helpless, before the God of the universe with me and plead mercy and receive a Savior. Come die to yourself. Be born again, raised to new life in Christ. That's what we're here to do. How do we know if we're pursuing our own version of righteousness or if we're pursuing Christ-likeness? Because sometimes they look the same. It's hard to distinguish. It goes to what's going on in the heart, right? And, and the thing is, um, so here, here are a couple of questions. I, I, so there's probably more questions to ask. This isn't the only litmus test. But, but I think some things that you can ask is, okay, am I, is this Christ-likeness? Is this transformation or is this... Man, is this some kind of self-righteousness that I'm unaware of and I'm just, you know, because I didn't know any better. And we all have that. Here's one question. Am I concerned that other people see me? What, 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 if, what if this transformation was something that, you know what, people, for some reason, in some ways or for some period of time, it, it kind of went unnoticed by others, even though 
No, I was, I was aware. Here's how you would answer the question. If you were on a deserted island the rest of your life, and no one ever saw you, what would you do? Would you still pursue Christ? Would you, would you still move in the direction of who he is? Jonathan Edwards wrote this great biography on a guy named David Brainerd, who was a missionary to um, Indians uh, way, way back early in American history. And Brainerd didn't live very long, but he's a very faithful guy. And Jonathan Edwards took time out of his life and wrote a biography about him and was there when he died um, at his deathbed. And Brainerd's words um, in, in those last hours to Edwards, he records and he says that Brainerd told him this. I do not go to heaven to be advanced, but to give God honor. It is no matter where I shall be stationed in heaven, whether I have a high or low seat there, but to live and to please and to glorify God, that's my heaven. My heaven is to please God and glorify Him and give all to Him and be wholly devoted to His glory. Brainerd said, I don't care. I'm ever rewarded for it. If anybody ever sees it, that's what I'm after. Here's another one, another question. Am I doing this to feel better about myself? I'm going to ease guilt. There's a difference between godly sorrow and guilt. Godly sorrow motivates humility. It, 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 it brings about you this need, this crushing need for mercy. That produces change. You know what guilt does? Guilt spurs a bunch of activity for you to do to clean up some mess you made so either you don't get caught or you make amends to people around you. Which Sometimes, listen, you ought to do that. You ought to go make... But guilt motivates you to clean up your own thing does not bring you to the place of humble, absolute, total dependence. Guilt is the, the response to guilt is an overestimation of your own flesh, an overestimation of what you're able to do. Confession, godly remorse, godly sorrow. Lord, I don't know, I, there's things I've got to clean up, but God, I, I can't. I can't clean up what's broken, what I broke with you. I can't rub the stain out that only you can do that. Here's the last one. Am, am I doing what I'm doing to impress God? Believing that God will somehow feel better about me. To which I would say the only way to stand in God's 10,000 degree white hot holiness is being clothed in the righteousness of his son, Jesus. David says in Psalm 51, you don't desire sacrifice. If you did, I thought you did, bring it. But a humble, contrite, repentant heart, that's what you desire. Okay. Good. Verse 5. Um, and I got three minutes. All right, so here's, see if I can do this. All right. So, verse 5, um, uh, Moses writes about the righteousness based on the law that the person who does the commandments live by. He's quoting um, Leviticus 18, and essentially what he's saying is, what about righteousness of the, of the law? Here's righteousness of the law. You have to keep the law absolutely perfect from the moment that you take your first breath until the moment you take your last. It essentially is what he's saying. He's quoting Leviticus to say, what's required of the law is impossible for you. 
In fact, James says, listen, you keep the whole law, yet you stumble at one point. You're not just guilty of that one point. You know what you're guilty of? You're guilty of the whole law, breaking the whole law. You can't do that. That's the righteousness of the law. So in 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, he's going to tell us what about the righteousness of faith. And in verses 6 and 7, he says these things that are kind of hard to understand. They're a quote from Deuteronomy 30. And what Paul does with them is absolutely theologically, exegetically genius and right. And in, he quotes from Deuteronomy 30. So, but the righteousness based on faith says this. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. And here's what he's saying. The righteousness of faith, it doesn't say, okay, how do I get to God? Because the righteousness of faith says you can't get to God, but don't worry about it. God came to you in the incarnation. The righteousness of faith doesn't say, how do I defeat death? Because you can't defeat death. But that's okay. Because Christ defeated death in the resurrection by which he's the first fruits and you'll follow in glory. You, you couldn't get to God, so God's answer, the incarnation. You can't defeat death, so God's answer, resurrection. That's what he's saying in 67. Negatively, that's, the righteousness of faith doesn't say those things. It, it, God's answered those. But the righteousness of faith does say, what does it say? Verse 8, that the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because. Now, let me just stop right there. These are, these are beautiful, wonderful verses that encourage our hearts. We need to remember two things. Paul's writing this in response to the Jews. Secondly, Paul is not giving you a magic formula. This is not the Christian abracadabra, okay? You know, presto, changeo, Christiano. That's not what he's saying. He's not describing so much of what you do as who you are as a saved person. This is who you are. And because of who you are, this is what you do, okay? Um, uh, verse 9 and 10, this is the content. So believing Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is, is Lord. It's, it's saying He has the rightful place over everything in my life. I'm not, I'm not the Lord anymore of my life or anybody else's. Jesus was raised from the dead. And people that are raised from the dead, I'm going to worship those people. There's only been one of them. And then in 10, here's the order. You believe, you confess, although it's not two separate things. It's, it's two sides of the same coin. They, they're things that, that happen to, together. Righteousness has to do with what we become. Salvation has to do with what we escape. This is the two sides. It's the same thing. First has to do with eternal life we receive but don't deserve. The second is eternal punishment we deserve but don't receive. 1 Corinthians 12.3, Paul says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse. You, know, you can't say that. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So if you're able to confess, I want Jesus is Lord. He's a rightful place in all my life. Whether I act like that or not all the time, that's one, you know, that's on me. But the reality is, 
I know, I believe he's been raised from the dead. And he is the, he's the highest priority, the, the seat of priority in every place in my life. And the only reason you can say that is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God's done something in you to be able to say that. Let me give you this one example. Oh, where is it? I think the, the, the clock moves fast around here. This is so weird. So, uh, Edinburgh, Scotland, 19, or 1847, uh, James Simpson, the doctor, invents chloroform. Chloroform then gets used in surgeries as an anesthetic. It, it changed the world. In fact, some believe this was the greatest discovery in modern medicine. It took away the pain in surgeries. It took away all the fear. I mean, it, it, just imagine, before 1947, there was no way for you to be, you know, well, the, there was other ways. I mean, they would knock you out. Or, um, but, but this was um, considered um, revolutionary, groundbreaking. Well, James Smith, uh, uh, Simpson, James Simpson comes back at the end of his life to give a lecture at the University of Edinburgh uh, in Scotland. And uh, one of the students asks him, what do you consider to be the most valuable discovery in your life? Which is, you know, students kind of throwing him a softball there because they all expect him to say, oh, well, chloroform. I mean, it, it changed everything. That's not what he says. This is my most valuable discovery was when I discovered myself a sinner and that Jesus Christ was my Savior. That's what Paul's talking about. When you realize that the most important thing about you is not anything you've ever done, but realizing that you're a sinner beyond hope, and yet God has, God has invited you to trust a Savior beyond your wildest imagination. That is believing in your heart. That's confessing with your mouth. This, this is the Spirit coming and opening your mind so that you can take hold of what you've longed for. Everyone in verse 11 that believes in Him will not be put to shame and then no distinction between Jews and Greeks. And 13, everyone who calls on, his, on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the universal offer of salvation. And then in 14 through 17, and, and we'll, we'll wrap this up here. How, how then can they call on him whom they not believe? There's going to be four questions. There's only one answer. How can they call on whom they believe? They can't. How can they believe in whom they heard? They can't. How can they hear without somebody preaching? They can't. How can they preach unless they're sent? They can't. These are four questions. Here's the one answer. You ready? As it's written, here's the answer. Here's the four questions. The answer is, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And throughout history, God has always sent messengers to proclaim salvation. And today, that messenger, the messenger's the church. You, me. We're the messengers. And far too many Christians have been lulled into thinking, you just simply live out your faith. People are going to look and go, man, you're sure different. I sure want to be like you. And then go off on their own and find out how to be that. Or maybe they think, you know, at least it'll make somebody ask a question. Let's be honest. The truth is, I mean, maybe it's happened to you. Most of, it doesn't almost ever happen. You know what the imperative is? That we have a message and we, in clear language, to our friends 
speak the gospel so that they can understand and they can act on it. And God loves it when we're in pro close proximity with people who desperately need him. He enjoys it when we take risks in conversations, when we turn conversations about the weather into things about the matter. Finds joy in ordinary Christians like you and me, ordinary people, having a spiritual effect on others at close range. We're not in the business of judging people. God does that. And the church has set up discipline for believers, but we're called to be patient with those that God puts in our path. Well, in verses 18 to 21, just so Mark doesn't have to cover it next week, um, uh, what he's going to say is, look, unsaved people are responsible. And the question becomes, well, haven't, you know, have they not heard and did they not understand? Have they heard? He's going to quote from Psalm 19 that says, oh yeah, they've heard. They've heard it in general revelation because the heavens proclaim the glory of God. And they've heard it in special revelation because they were actually given the word of God. Oh, oh, they've heard. Did they not understand? No, they could have understood. But they didn't know God. They spent a lifetime knowing about him and in constructing them in their own image. And yet God, at the very end, he says, I continue to be patient with them. How does this faith, uh, when he says faith comes from hearing, how does this work? I would say it this way, and we'll wrap up. We're born with the knowledge of God. Paul says this in Romans 1. We're, the knowledge of God, who, you know, this, the, the law of God, the ethics of God, the morality, all that's stamped on us. I mean, that's why we know what's right and what's wrong, and that's the same by and large across all cultures. That I'm born with the innate sense that it is not right that I steal your stuff just because I want it. It's imprinted in us. So this knowledge of God is written on our hearts. But we must come to know, we must come to learn, we must hear about redemption, and faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the Word of Christ. So when our knowledge this, that's imprinted in us meets the gospel and proclaimed of how are you redeemed? How are you reconciled with this God who imprinted himself? Bam, that's where faith happens. It is the gospel that brings forth faith in our lives. As the gospel of Christ is heard. That's why Paul is saying, it's not at 1 Corinthians 2, it's not up to me. I don't have to persuade anybody. I just, I just speak the gospel of redemption. That meets with the knowledge imprinted in who they are by design, and bam, faith happens. Um, we'll talk about that next week. I'll close this way. In 490 BC, 490 BC, um, the Persians go to... Um, strike a blow on the Athenians, Athens. Famous battle, 490. Persians are going to take them over. They're going to wipe out their civilization. The Persians were like locusts. They, they were undefeatable in their day. And so you have a bunch of people from Athens. They're, they're, they're hiding out. They're there. The men have gone to fight. And this is where we get the famous marathon run where the man is sent as a messenger to run 22, I mean 26.2 miles to bring this good news 
that the Persians didn't win. The Athens actually won. The, the Athenians beat the Persians. And he runs 26.2 miles to tell his people, we won. Imagine how beautiful the feet of him who brought that good news. See, they had assumed to death or slavery or end of their civilization awaited them. Instead, a messenger brought this good news. He brought a gospel that someone had fought on their behalf and they were the recipients of the victor of the victory. And even though lives were lost, you won. Live like it. Why would you ever now become a Persian? You're an Athenian. Listen, we get to be the ones that tell people that a king has come and that he has accomplished victory over sin and death and that they can step out of death into life. And that we can trust the Spirit of God to handle all the outcomes free from all the anxiety that we get. Those conversations are coming up to get it right because in the plainest language we know, we tell them about the hope of our Savior. And realize that in that moment, we're God's messenger who has been sent by him. And we trust God for the outcome. Who are you praying for? Who's your desire for? Are you shooting the gap as God's messenger when those opportunities arise? Who are you taking the gospel to? Will you bow with me? Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.